Good morning, friends. Today's message, Is Your Religion Really Real? My base text is James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which reads as follows. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I don't know whether you're on Facebook or not. I imagine you are. And you can read some rather interesting things, uh, some of them positive, some of them not so positive, some of them negative, and some of those just downright negative. Uh, one of them I read not long ago was kind of a negative take on Christianity. And it re- read this follow. That's what this post said. Did you know you could spend your life being very religious and end up wasting your time? You deceived yourself, but you didn't fool God. You might as well have gone fishing or bowling or biking. That would have done you as much good as all of your church attendance, your praying, your giving, your singing, and your fasting. A few days spent fishing would have been better for you than all those sermons you heard. Now, i got to tell you, that post kind of shocks me since I'm a pastor, teacher, But I had better not spend this time just talking only to you. I need this message myself. See, a friend told me once that before he ever preaches, he always prays, Lord, help me preach the sermon I need to hear. Now, that helps me in two ways. One, I don't stand above the congregation or apart from it. Two, I need to hear the word of the Lord because I am just as likely to deceive myself as anyone else. Now, that's exactly the point Jesus makes here in the text. When he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, he uses a word that means to imagine. If you kind of imagine yourself to be religious. See, self-deception is the easiest and worst sort of deception. It's easy because we all tend to have kind of an inflated opinion of ourselves, and it's the worst because when you deceive yourself, you don't realize it. The word religious means to James approximately what it means to us today. It refers to the outward aspects of the Christian faith, such as church attendance, taking part in public worship, singing, praying, giving, testifying, and and in other ways going through the motions of Christianity. Now, how do we know if our good, conservative, evangelical, Bible-based religion is acceptable to God? Well, James in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, gives us three signs that could prove our religion is real. Now, it may surprise you that the list doesn't look religious at all. I mean, James says the religion that God approves impacts your conversation, your compassion, and your character. Now, sometimes we talk about Monday morning faith as opposed to Sunday morning religion. But what happens on Sunday is important, but what happens on Monday is even more important. To be clear about it, James isn't saying Sunday worship doesn't matter. Far from it. He's about to deal with that in James chapter 2. But here in James chapter 1, he warns us no amount of outward religiosity can compensate for an unbridled tongue, an uncompassionate heart, and an unholy character. So let's start with sign number one, your conversation. Here's what James says. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his or her tongue, but deceives their own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now, while some translations say bridle, a few put it this way, keeping a tight rein on your tongue. Now, I don't know how you feel, 
<clears throat> but some people just, they just talk too much. They have too many opinions. They share them too quickly. And because they have an answer for everything and they have the gift of the clever put down, they, they wreak havoc wherever they go. I mean, a ministry leader once uh, told me that he instructed his team to feel free to have no opinion about that. Yeah, that's a pretty good rule. Well, let's get back to the unbridled tongue and allow me to share just a, a few examples. Vulgarity, obscenity, indecent language, dirty jokes, off-color stories, pornographic language, racial or ethnic insults, humor meant to insult or put someone down, angry outbursts, harsh words, mean-spirited comments, gossip, rumors, false accusations, imputing bad motives, public criticism of your spouse or children, yelling and screaming, threats or intimidating comments, endless criticism, quick-cutting comments, Cheap shots, talking too much, talking without listening, condemning others, exaggerating the faults of others, excusing kind words by unkind words by saying, I was only joking. Did any of those sound familiar? Yeah, I see myself in some of that. Now, why is this so important? Well, Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. I mean, every time you open your mouth, either life or death comes out. The Bible speaks of the throat as an open grave in Romans 3.13. When, when there is death on the inside, it will eventually show up in your words. You know, I, I've read somewhere that the average person speaks 16,000 words a day. Now, that's, that's the equivalent to a 64-page book. And then tomorrow, another book, and the day after, another one. Well, imagine if someone reads the contents of the book you're writing with your tongue today. Suppose it was recorded somewhere, written down somehow, caught on video, and then played back on the Internet for the whole world to see. What would you learn about your or my vocabulary? What about how you speak to a spouse or children? About offhand comments you make about your friends or how you react under pressure or how you respond when criticized? Now, friends, if that thought doesn't terrify you a little bit, then you are a saint far advanced beyond the rest of us, or dare I say it, you are <laughs> clueless about yourself. One of my favorite uh, Christian authors, David Platt, he's the, the author of the book Radical, and I'd really suggest you take a chance to read that book sometime. He points out that social media increases the temptation of careless speech. In his book, he said, in the day of text messages, emails, cell phones, Twitter, blogs, Facebook, etc., we need to be careful. We've created an entire culture that says if you have a thought, then you should immediately share it with the rest of the world. But follower of Christ, don't buy that line of reasoning. Now, it's easy to make excuses, isn't it? Let's suppose 93% of your speech is totally praiseworthy. Or make it 96% or 97%. But what about the 7% or the 4% or the 3%? I mean, that's James' whole point here. You can't skate past the truth by saying, well, my speech is morally upright 97% of the time. That's kind of like saying, I'm not really a murderer. And most of the time, I never murder anyone. I only kill people eh, about 3% of the time. Perhaps we need to pray for the gift of silence. I remember reading about a famed linguist about whom it was said that he knew how to remain silent in seven different languages. Well, James draws a shocking conclusion when he says the unbridled tongue makes your religion useless. We need to keep this warning in mind at all times, but especially when we're tired or under pressure or when other people try to provoke us. May the Lord grant us special grace so that we might keep a tight rein on our tongue.
Well, here's sign number two, your compassion. Verse 27, the first part of it says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, true religion, you see, moves us to action. We don't just see the need and then walk away after saying a few good words. We can never substitute another church service or even more Bible reading for rolling up our sleeves and getting involved in this hurting world. True religion sees the distress of the world and then moves to meet that need. Now, James points out or singles out two groups that deserve special attention, orphans and widows. And then he adds a qualifying phrase, in their distress. He means those people who are kind of alone and forgotten. They are in distress precisely because they have no one to care for them or love them. Now, this echoes a familiar Old Testament theme in Exodus 22:22. It says, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Isaiah 1:17, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Zechariah 7:10, do not oppress the widow or the orphan. Now, understand, friends, widows have very legal, very little legal protection in the first century. That's why Jesus denounced the religious leaders who devour widows' houses while making long prayers as a show of public piety. That's in Mark 12:40. They make a show of their religiosity while taking advantage. They did this by preying on these widows' vulnerable position, inducing them to give away their money until they were destitute. I mean, they literally devoured whatever money the widow had until she was left helpless and penniless. <clears throat> now, here then is one test of true religion. Will we care for those whose need is so great that they can never repay us? Now, sometimes I hear people talking about certain people we need to reach for Jesus who could do a lot to help the church. I actually had somebody tell me that when I arrived at one of my churches. You need to be really nice to these people because they fund a lot of stuff around here. Uh, well, you know, they generally, when they talk that way, they mean rich people, famous people, well-connected people, but they never mean orphans or widows. They have nothing to offer but faith, hope, and love. And to put the matter uh, to put the matter that way is not to argue against reaching rich and famous people because they need Jesus too. But we need to recapture James' perspective, which is, will we care for those who can never pay us back? The religion God approves cares for those who cannot care for themselves. It includes the widows and the orphans, but it doesn't end there. It needs to include the unborn, the sick the dying, the homeless, the disabled, immigrants, the victims of sex trafficking, prisoners, refugees, and many other the world would rather overlook. And here's the third sign. It's your character. Verse 27 in our text says, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now think about it this way. Imagine a little boy coming home from school. It's been raining, so there's mud puddles in his path. What does he do? Well, if it was me, it kind of depends. If he remembers what he was told by his parents or grandparents, he's going to walk around the mud puddle so he don't get dirty. But if he feels in a kind of a frisky mood, he's going to jump into that puddle getting mud all over his clothes. Well, what's grandma and grandpa or mom and dad going to say then? Well, that's the sort of picture James has here in mind. We live in a dirty world. I mean, if we aren't careful, we'll end up stained by moral compromise. And we need to see a connection between his command and the previous one. In order to care for the widows and the orphans, we have to go where they are. But in our going, 
we must not lower our standards and somehow compromise our convictions. Somehow, we must find ways to get deeply involved in this hurting world while at the same time not letting the world rub off on us. This speaks to where we go, what we do, what we read, the games we play, the people we hang out with, the media we watch, the music we listen to, and it certainly applies to the language we, we use. Now, I don't think we need to become fearful of this world, but we do need to be wise in the choices we make. Put simply, there are some places I personally cannot go. There are some people I don't need to be around. There are some internet sites I won't visit. There are some television shows, I just don't watch them. They would drag me down. To borrow the words of Clint Eastwood, a man's got to know his limitations. I need to know who I am and whose I am. And as a practical matter, I need to know my limits and stay within them, even if others can do what I can't do. I hope you noted that James does not say keep others unstained by the world. I'm not called to be the moral judge of everyone else. I mean, it's a hard enough job to keep myself in line. Now, certainly I care about my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I can't make decisions for them. I am, however, 100% accountable for the choices I make. Now, we sometimes think a little sin doesn't matter. But would you drink a glass of water that had only 1% poison? No, you wouldn't do that. You want unpolluted water. Now, we hear a lot about air and water pollution. But how about moral pollution? That's pretty easy to get dirty these days. See, the world rubs up, rubs off on us more than we realize. And pretty soon we start to talk and act like people around us. And it's a good thing when we're in the world. It's a bad thing, though, when the world is in us. See, here is the dilemma of James 1.27. We are to be fully engaged in the world. We have to get our hands dirty in the muck and the mire of human pain and sadness. When we reach out to hurting people, we will end up in some difficult situations. We need to go anyway and go in the name of Jesus. But while we're there... We must not be contaminated by the filth of the world around us. Now, in all of these things, we have the example of Jesus who left the beauty of heaven for a barnyard birth. He left behind the purity of heaven to rescue us from impurity of this world. He walked among us, lived with us, talked with us, ate with us, laughed with us, cried with us. He rubbed shoulders with gluttons and drunkards. He knew the Pharisees and called them hypocrites. But he never became a glutton or a drunkard or a hypocrite. The prostitutes evidently knew him and recognized him in him, a kind of man who was different from all the others they had known. Because he was the son of God, he lifted the fallen, but did not fall himself. If we are to obey what James has taught us, friends, we need Jesus living in us. We will never bridle our tongue or reach out to the hurting or keep ourselves unstained by the world in our own power. We need Jesus. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? Have you asked him to save you? Let me end with the prayer that we all need to pray after a message like this. Lord Jesus, without you, I will never live this way. Come and take control of my tongue. Come and give me a heart of compassion. Come and make me pure from the inside out. Transform me by your power so that I might be pleasing to my Heavenly Father. In your name I pray. Amen. Until next time, friends, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.